Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. On today's episode, we'll be speaking to Andy Ayim, the founder of Andy's VC School. We'll also be discussing topics such as, do all startups need millions in funding to actually get started? How involved do investors and venture capitalists get in a business venture? What role do emotions play in investing? Is venture capitalism an elitist or biased field? And should you raise any red flags with your investors once you get into bed with them? You know, today it seems that everyone wants to raise millions of dollars or pounds to get their idea off the ground. And in order to get there, a lot of them turn to the venture capitalist industry. Now, what exactly is a venture capitalist in the first place? Primarily, venture capitalists are people that invest in riskier types of endeavors, be it a startup or any other type of risky, nascent idea, where only about one out of every 10 ventures are successful. Typically, the types of businesses they invest in are highly scalable and they are addressing a key market need that no one else has addressed. It's a pretty niche industry, but for those that have MBAs or typically go to select types of networking events, it's something that is really well known within the finance industry or the startup industry for that matter. Now, when we look at this sector as a whole or this industry as a whole, there are a few different things that come out. First of all, do you typically need to be highly educated in order to get venture capital funding? I recently saw some data that showed that 82.3% of all founders of companies that received venture capital funding had a university degree, which means a bachelor's degree or higher, compared to just 35% in the EU of those that did not have a bachelor's degree or higher. So there is some bias here in terms of being highly educated. And this made me think, is the venture capitalist industry a biased one, not only towards education, but perhaps towards certain communities, certain locations, and other types of demarcations within society. Another thing that stood out to me, which is really interesting, was in terms of the ethnic diversity of venture capitalism. 43% of Black and African or Caribbean founders said they, they've experienced personal discrimination when they're trying to go for venture capital funding. In fact, black founders made up only 1%, in fact, specifically 0.9% of more than 1,200 founders that were surveyed here in Europe. So this shows, or at least is indicative to me, that there is a sort of potential bias problem. But the question is here, why does this persist? Is it because there are few black entrepreneurs that are seeking funding? Or are the people that have the money to invest not necessarily invested in the types of communities such as African-American, Caribbean, Asian communities that are seen as underrepresented. Another myth that I thought of, which is pretty interesting, was how involved does a venture capitalist actually get into your business once they give you the money? From my perspective, it seems like they just give you the money and let you crack on with what you need to do. But there might be a host of other things such as 
expanding your network or maybe helping you complement whatever business endeavor you're going into or whatever solution with other types of solutions to make a holistic type of endeavor. Apart from that, venture capitalists are also really good at helping you with parts of the business that you might be weak at. So if you're a founder and you're really good at perhaps getting a team together, but not so strong on the financial modeling side of things, perhaps they have resources or tools that can help you and guide you along that way. Needless to say, as venture capitalists choose founders or companies, companies also have to choose the right venture capitalists. This relationship is built on either a location or a particular industry that a venture capitalist will typically invest their money into. Now, we all think investing or finding sources of funding for your business is a very logical driven type of decision. But emotions do play a role in investing. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear venture capitalists say things like, we invest in the founding team, or we invest in the entrepreneur and not the business. But that kind of goes against the ethos of we invest to make money, because making money or having a successful exit is not necessarily an emotional decision. How invested are the emotions versus the logical perspective of VCs making an investment decision? Another topic which we'll be discussing later on with Andy is should you raise the red flags that you see within your business with your investors? One of the reasons I thought of this is because typically the more red flags that you raise, the more apprehensive your investor could get. They could think you're not spending or using their money in the most effective way possible. That's why it's really important to find a good investor or venture capitalist that wants you to actually raise problems so that they can help solve your problems. They're not just typically people that give you money and walk away. At least the good ones aren't. Last but not least, in the venture capital industry, let's also explore the idea that this is the only source of funding. Now, as I alluded to earlier on, loans have been traditional sources of capital for small businesses. But lately, there have been new initiatives or new ways of sourcing funding, such as crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending as well, and other types of lending facilities. So why is it that we all still are enamored with the venture capital industry? Perhaps it's because they have deep pockets. Perhaps it's because they have a good network. But not all businesses are actually relevant for this type of funding. Sometimes it's actually better to go small than to go really big because you can overextend yourself and have a high burn rate when it comes to the cash that you're spending as opposed to perhaps being more frugal if you get other sources of funding which are perhaps not as large but also come with less expectations on what you'll return on that capital. On this episode, we'll explore a lot of these with Andy. Hopefully, he'll give us some good insights. So people sometimes over-index on companies that have survived, okay? But for every Facebook, there's a thousand that failed and those are not reported on because they're not newsworthy. So the news really emphasizes the Facebook and makes us forget that it's the 0.001% that we're seeing there. So to index off that is a wrong proxy because actually probability-wise, you're not it's unlikely that the majority of these companies are going to become a Facebook. That's the first thing out of the way. The second is that VC, it by its nature, uh, especially a strong VC, invests in less than 1% of deal flow. So less than 1% of the deals that it sees, if it sees 3,000 a year, it's actually investing in. So 99% don't actually get venture capital. And it was proven last year with the Kauffman Foundation's report, which said that 0.5% of new entrepreneurs 
get VC uh, capital, whereas 24% get a loan or a debt at some, some time in their company's life. So that just shows the extremities between the two when you don't see many news stories about this company that grew really fast and used loans because it's not as sexy, it's not as attractive, it's not newsworthy. So sometimes when we're forming an informed opinion, we need to really consider the data sources that we're taking into form that opinion. And we need to relearn almost how to not just go off what we're seeing on social media or, or what other people are doing and really come to an informed opinion by taking in a range of different data sources. And I really think the real thing to kind of like understand about like funding is that it's all about working capital. I need money to help me grow my business at the stage that I'm at. And a different type of capital depends on what type of business you are and what stage your business is at. Because there's such a wide range of array of options when it comes to money. You know, you could get a grant, you could win a competition and get some money. You could get a startup loan from the government. You could get, you know, an Innovate UK grant for like research related projects. You could get angel investment. You could get VC investment. You could get a loan from a bank. You could get equity crowdfunding. You could, and here we've just explored so many different options. You know, so sometimes we skew too much to VCs when actually there's a ton of options. And it just, just depends on what type of company you are, what stage you are, and what your ambitions are. Those are very good points. I mean, if I think about it myself, I think you're completely right in saying that there is a, a successor or a survival sort of bias around it. Everyone mm. only hears of the success stories. And, uh, you know, in some ways it's good because you kind of need to be a bit naive to think, oh, I could actually be that successful mm. to even, you know, start a venture or to even look for capital and things like that. Uh, but I think hearing more about the the failures that are out there might help or, or check people to think maybe there are other things that I could have done differently to be right. uh, a success. Like, as you mentioned, look for equity funding or crowdsourcing or, you know, the other avenues to actually get money. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the part that you mentioned whereby not all businesses are actually VC ready, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain type of business at a certain stage. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because everyone thinks, uh, you know, any kind of business can get venture capital. Right. It's all about the potential for scale or the opportunity size or those types of things. But those are not the only factors that you have to think about when you mm -hmm. say this company is relevant for venture capital and this company is not so much. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about that. So the first thing to state is that like 99% of businesses that we see every day and interact with every day haven't got any funding from VCs. Okay, so that's anything from your local florist to your corner shop to your plumbing company to even like technology companies that some don't even know that VC exists as an industry. So let's just understand that as a blanket statement. And then like, what does VC actually look for? Okay, and we have to talk about the model of VC and how it works. So VCs get funded by a range of different sources, okay? And, and their job is to provide shareholder value. So for every 100K you invest, let's say, I, my job is to provide you back a 10X return, let's say, and a million back, okay? In order for me to do that, I need to invest in businesses that I believe can grow into a billion dollar, a billion pound businesses or multiple billion pound businesses, you know? And every investment that they're making they're hoping that business is going to 10x and grow to that scale. Okay. In reality, the majority of the businesses that they back don't. In fact, the majority of VCs are failing and actually fail to make a return. Okay. That's why a lot of them don't raise fund two, three, four, or five. You know, the ones that do, often they say there's this rule of thirds. Like a third of their portfolio will do well. A third kind of does okay, which is not good for them because it doesn't provide them the return to their fund. And a third just die. 
Okay. And it's important to understand like how a VC works and then actually what they look for. So what do they actually look for? They're looking for businesses that can grow 10x. So often they're looking at market spaces that are not too contested that businesses can really grow into because they have a bias. So if there's a certain marketplace that they feel is already occupied by an Uber, for example, an Airbnb or a Facebook, they wouldn't be confident in most companies trying to compete in that space because they've seen the dominance that a lot of these monopolies have in those spaces. You know, the second thing that they look for is companies that leverage technology rather than people to scale. Okay. And sometimes actually this rule is broken. And we see that with the likes of Uber, which is very human intensive. We work, which is really a real estate business that's been valued at a technology business, which is why they fell to IPO because they lost 85% of their value when they went to IPO, as well as all of the dodgy dealings that their founder has done. <laughs> okay. Um, they also look for proprietary technology. So have they created technology themselves that's core to what makes differentiates them because if so that's a bit of a barrier and a moat and defensibility because it will take time before another competitor can complete can uh, create that technology from scratch you know um, another thing they look at is um, the founding team especially when it's at an early stage a lot of the decisions based on this founding team what are their history what are the dynamics does that person inspire followership you know are people from their old company following them into this new company are, they, are these people that have a track record of achievement? Is this the second time they found a business or have they succeeded at other companies that are quite reputable? Reputable, you know. So they look at that founding team and the makeup of that team, if that team are in a position to really win. You know, when analyzing the team, they often look at their domain expertise and their network. Like, is this someone that's worked, for example, in um, like social, social networks for the last 20 years? They've worked at Facebook, they've worked at Instagram, they've worked at WhatsApp. If so, they're very well positioned to start a new Facebook, uh, social network and do well, you know? And that's a bias in itself, right? Because a lot of these companies that we're talking about, Facebook, Uber, the founders didn't have necessarily a track record in those industries. If we look at PayPal, Peter Thiel was a, a lawyer before he started that. If we look at Reid Hoffman, he had nothing to do with like, like networking before he founded LinkedIn. So sometimes we have these biases that pull us in, cause us to make decisions and we break these kind of rules that we believe. But those are kind of things that VCs look for when, when initially looking at a company. Markets, can it grow into a, a billion dollar company? The founding team, proprietary technology, um, and then obviously traction or evidence that they've got a problem worth solving. So actually month for month, can you show me evidence that you're solving this problem for more and more people? Because what that shows me is that there is a problem worth solving. People see value in your solution to that problem. And every month you're finding more and more people like this uh, who have this problem too. Those are excellent points. One of the things that you said that stands out to me was a bit about the founding team. Um, mm. The reason why is because, you know, the conception out there is that VCs just throw money at the team and leave them to kind of get on with what they do. But there's also another element to that, which is, you know, VCs can sometimes give support other than financial, right? Which mm. is either networks and connecting people Absolutely. or just uh, helping them with a strategic vision or, you know, finding bolt on services that might complement what they're doing. Mm. So is it always the case that VCs are just throwing money in 90% of the cases and leaving the founding team to get on with, their, with what they're doing because mm. the founders are the experts, they know what they're doing? Right, right. Right. Um, as opposed to us as a VC, or do the VCs try and get involved in order to sort of shape the dynamic of the company and and really guide those founders along their journey? It's really interesting because I posted something this morning on my IGTV about this kind of subject. And the truth is, like someone mentioned a quote to me last week about um, VC is really about the business of managing money and sales. I don't agree at all. VCs don't really manage money. 
okay? They fundraise and they do a lot of selling because they're selling to people to invest in their funds. They're selling to founders to allow them to participate in investing in their startups. They're even selling to other VCs to co-invest with them into deals. But when it comes to managing money, they don't actually manage money. They raise that money and then that money gets managed by the, the startups that they invest in. And the VC doesn't have too much governance or, or um, I guess, uh, influence over how that money is managed. The, the, two, the three real value adds that you get from VC beyond the capital, because the capital is not really a differentiator, you can get capital from a lot of sources, is firstly, there should be someone that, has, um, that can fill your knowledge gaps. So when you have gaps in your knowledge, like I don't know how to reach customers in a cost-effective way through digital marketing, can they help you plug that gap? You know, if I'm really weak on hiring, I've never hired before, can they help you plug that gap? You know, that's what they need to do. Knowledge gaps is, is number one. Number two is can they introduce you into new customers, new partners, and new places? So if I'm trying to grow and scale into America, I'm trying to grow and scale into Ghana and Africa, can they get me into those markets? Do they have the networks and the access to get me distributed into those places? If I'm a direct-to-consumer brand and I make, let's say, deodorants, can they get me into Tesco? Can they get me into Asda? All right, so can they get me into those places? And that's worth more than the money because that leads to revenue from your customers, okay? And the third is that often your relationship with your investor is a long-term relationship. It lasts longer than certain like relationships with your partner, <laughs> like even marriages, um, so you need to make sure that you can create a safe space culturally where you feel like you can have honest conversations with your investor and they're going to be there through the thick and thin, especially through the times that when things are going bad. You know, so if you're not hitting the metrics, how do they respond? If you are actually going through some mental health issues, how do they respond? Well, well, how honest can you actually be with your investor? Because uh, in one sense, you want to be honest with them because mm. then they can guide you. But in, in another sense, you don't want to be too honest with them because um, they might see it as a red flag or there are too many red flags that are coming up. You know what I mean? How do you manage that kind of... I, I, so, so this is where I guess I'm a bit different to the average in, in what I think. And I, I treat it like when I interview for a job. So I can choose to go to that interview and be 60% of myself and really just try and flex my style to suit what I think that they want. Or I can land and be 100% myself from day one so you know what you're getting into. And I think a mutually beneficial relationship is when you land in day one and you're your most authentic self. And that's what leads you to do your, more, your best work. And I think it's the same with your VC relationship. You want to be able to feel like you can be vulnerable in front of them and honest. And they should feel like that's the times where they add the most value. You know, they're not meant to be armchair investors, not all of them anyway. So the ones that are active should be active at those points, especially. That's their opportunity to show that they add value beyond the capital, you know. And sometimes it's strategic to have armchair investors that aren't going to ask for too much reporting, aren't going to bug you too much and just going to let you go on with it. And sometimes you outgrow a relationship. It's like having a mentor. Like as a graduate, I'm trying to break into, let's say, management consulting and I find someone that's worked in the industry and that person helps me get in. But now I understand it and I understand how to navigate and stakeholder management. Actually, I've outgrown that relationship and they're a friend, but they're not a mentor for what I need right now. So maybe the next mentor I get is someone who's a director who can help me go through the ranks. And it's the same with your investors. Your angel investor might be really useful in the early days, but when you reach a certain scale and you've grown a company to a certain size, Actually, they can't add much value, but they might just have a platonic friendship relationship with you. And therefore, another VC may be able to carry on that relationship depending on what you need. And I call that like your personal board of advisors. Whether you're in a career or you're a founder, it's always good to have a personal board of advisors that can help you make more informed decisions. And you can trust them to help you make decisions because they've got expertise in those areas where you perhaps don't.
You mentioned something that was quite interesting there about stakeholder management. Uh, a lot of the times I'd say people uh, think that, you know, VCs have to just deal with founders. But the truth, at least from the outside looking in, is that you're not just managing relationships with the founders, but most of the times it's not just you that's actually deploying the capital um, that's involved in that equation. You have like uh, people that gave you your funding because you have to report to them and give them status updates and you have to keep that relationship with them. Uh, the myth I'm, I'm trying to deconstruct here a little bit is that it's not always just your capital that you're deploying, right? You're you're deploying capital that you've sourced from other places. In fact, most VCs, it's other people's capital mm. and you have to manage yeah. that relationship a little bit, right? Um, when you split your time, part of it is fundraising mm. and being that mentor to these founders and doing your due diligence. You know, there's multiple facets that you have to, to deal with. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that, how your time is spent with that stakeholder management, not particularly on the founder side, but on the other things that we don't typically see as part of the VC world. Mm, it's a great question. So caveat, I'm not at a VC at the moment. <laughs> I was at Backstage Capital. I now run uh, Andy's Investment School, which used to be called the Angel Investing School. Um, but I can give some insight from my experience and from what I know of the industry. So um, aside from spending time with founders and, you know, when I was at Backstage, I, I spent more than 50% of my time with founders because they're the customer and that's who I'm serving. And they're the ones that are going to create the value to return to the fund. So it makes sense for me to speak to them early and often because they're the ones that are going to generate the value that, that gets us the KPIs that we need. Um, part of it is reporting back to your LPs. So producing uh, management re reports to your uh, investors that invested into your fund to let them know the portfolio growth, like how's the portfolio performing, um, what increase in value has the portfolio seen, who has had follow-on funding, if they've had follow-on funding, who have they had it from, are they tier one investors that have followed on in investing because that's a positive sign that makes it look good, you know, um, has there been any exits and if so, for how much and by who? So these are the kind of things that you're reporting on to your investors to send back positive signals about performance and how things are going. Another one is the fact that you're actually managing a company yourself. So you've got all of these employees that you need to look after, like what does their annual reviews look like? What does pro like progression look like for them? How are they performing? Like, do I need to hire for a backfill? Do I have some people leaving? Do I need to do some onboarding? So there's all these typical things that you do in a company, regardless what type of company you are, that you still have to do. You know, um, how am I thinking about marketing? Because marketing can help me in terms of deal flow, you know, marketing and events. I never so thought about that. Actually. Am I doing am I doing the office hours? Am I creating in, insightful blogs? Do I have a good presence on social? Some VCs are really shit at this. Some are really good, especially the American ones like Andreessen Horowitz. They have the A16Z podcast. They've got the ben, uh, Benedict Evans mobile newsletter every week. They've got all sorts on video. So they've done a great job of content. First round is another one which is great with content again. In the UK, not as many, if I'm being honest. So again, is another way of getting more inbound. Um, the hard thing is not a lot of VCs right now allow you to just submit your pitch deck online. When, in my opinion, like that removes a lot of the barriers to entry because if I only have to come through a warm network, how do I get into those networks to get into you? Exactly. Um, another thing that VCs have to think about is almost like always be fundraising. So even though you've raised for fund one, as you're deploying it, you need to start strategically having those relationships built up so you can start raising for the next fund. You know, so the fund's life cycle might be four to four to six years. But actually during that period, you need to be raising so that you can get into the next fund pretty soon. You know, so you need those portfolio companies to be performing. So you provide the right evidence points 
to be able to go and fundraise again. And it's likely you're going to look not only at your existing investors, which we call limited partners or LPs, but almost a new set as well. And it could be family offices, pension funds, bigger private equity companies or VC companies, uh, really super angels, so very rich individuals. So there are different sources that you can even source this capital from. And it takes time to nurture those relationships. So that's a significant role. And within a VC, you've got different roles. So your general partners will be focusing on that aspect of sales. A lot of the analysts and juniors may be focusing a lot on carrying out the due diligence. You know, so if you're getting 3,000 pitch decks, who's actually looking through a lot of them? You know, whatever proportion of them you look through. So all of that is very time consuming as well. So there's a lot of activities under the bonnet that goes into just running a company that applies to even running a VC as well. You know, you never think of those things as the norm because VC is looked at as almost a separate entity. But yeah, it is a regular business. It has to do marketing and things like that. I, I guess the perception out there is that there's sort of a different brand of company that doesn't mm -hmm. need to do those regular things, but they do need to do it. Uh, something else that you mentioned that was pretty interesting to me was growth. And this is maybe, I don't see a criticism that I have of the industry, but I'd like to get your insights on it because there's this perception that uh, the figures that you need to report to the people that have given you the money um, in terms of just growth at all costs, forget the business model, which has kind of been the way things have gone for the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, that's led to some problems as we've seen with a few companies, but this idea that it's just growth at all costs. Um, from the outside looking in, first of all, number one, that doesn't seem like a great business model, which is just, you know, growth at all costs and we'll worry about profitability later. But then that also leads, leads to a sort of negative misconception in some ways in, in, in the fact that people think that you're just passing on the hot potato, right? Series A, they'll just get to the certain metrics they need to and then pass it on to like the Series B guys and then they'll just get the hot potato and just, you know, grow the company with, with customer numbers and then just pass it on until we can get to an IPO and we just pass it on to the general public without anyone really doing, you know, the business case for it. And we see that with, with Uber and a few companies whose, you know, value has, has really taken a bit of a hit after the IPO, right? Because no one really thought about, is this a long-term sustainable kind of thing? And not just a short-term, you know, raise money, get the growth at all costs, and then just go from one stage mm -hmm. to the next. How do you, what's your thoughts on that? What, what, how do you challenge that misconception? So at its core, core, it's all about our perception of value perceived value and there's two different ways there's value creation okay and there's shareholder value and let me explain both okay because a vc makes its money when one of the startups exits an exit is what we call a liquidation event a liquidation event could be an ipo which is an initial public offering so that's like i grow a company and then i float it onto the FTSE 250 or onto the s p 500 okay and at that point my shares get sold onto the public and I make a return from the difference between how much I bought my shares for versus how much the public is now buying it off me, basically. Or an acquisition is another type of exit. So that's when an, a bigger company acquires my company. And again, how much did I buy my shares for versus how much are they acquiring it? So that's shareholder value. And because of that incentive structure, that's why VCs are so focused on growth over profit. Because if you're acquiring that company, you're acquiring it in mind of thinking, actually, I think I can turn that into a profitable company when I consider my portfolio of companies. Or I think I can use the technology in that company and what they do and actually it will help me make more money elsewhere in my company. So if we look at Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp, WhatsApp is free, right? WhatsApp doesn't make money, okay? It doesn't have ads, all right? They actually introduced a one pound fee about five years ago to slow down growth. I remember that. Because they were growing too quick and they only had 50 engineers and they couldn't handle the growth. 
Facebook bought WhatsApp for the data to be able to read our language, our messaging, to inform its advertising platform so that it can target us better. Okay, whether they're covert or over overtly sharing that, that's why they bought WhatsApp. Okay, and for the audience, the amount of customers that are sticky and using that, there's value to that. Twitter has undeniable value, not profitable company, but it's hard, right? Because you can't you can't deny the value of the fact that we're using it every day, but it's not profitable. So does that mean that it's not a good company because it's not profitable? And I'm not sure. And where I sit is I love companies that return to the fundamentals. I think companies should be profitable. Okay. I think you can't survive unless you're profitable. In fact, it's almost like having dynamite, like that fuse is going to blow up at some point. You know, the problem is <coughs> when there's too much uh, capital available in the private market, it keeps these companies private for longer and fuels them to keep on growing at all costs. But we understand that the reason that that exists is because of this incentive structure that we've spoken about here around um, the IPOs and the, and, and the acquisitions. But then we've also spoken about the value creation here that's undeniable with the likes of Twitter, which could be unprofitable, but we clearly find it valuable because we're using it so much. Yeah. So then what happens here? Yeah. Like, can we figure out a business model that works or does it continue to be unprofitable, but we, we deem value from it? You know, and that's where I feel like there needs to be a change in how we see these businesses. And we need to almost like let them grow to a certain stage, but then actually it becomes like halt the break. Now we have to focus on getting them profitable mm. and to find a business model that works. We talk a lot about product market fit, but what about business model fit? Like actually, have you found something that there's a cost, there's a margin, and therefore there's a profit to what you're doing? If not, what you're doing isn't feasible and viable for the market. And it's not fair for us to, to pass hospital passes into the public market which is why it's good that actually WeWork didn't get to float at that ridiculous valuation. Because what happens there is the investors get rich, the founders get rich, and some of the early employees, but it's the public that have to deal with that mess. And the public actually, and the way the public markets are set up, it's actually, it's not very set up, it's not set up very well to deal with that fact. It's not like you have a choice to say no. But that's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, if you're trying to change the perception of people that work in the VC world um, towards a certain slant, uh, you know, look for profitability or to just change their mm. minds, they'll look at it and say, you know, we've been doing this for a few decades. Mm. We've been successful at it. Everyone is trying to get into VCs, an interesting space, all that kind of stuff. Changing their perceptions is going to be pretty tough. I mean, you alluded to it a bit earlier, whereby a lot of them say they only look at, at decks that uh, are introduced to them via warm leads or something right, like right. that, right? We're not going to just have people submitted online. I mean, what kind of crazy situation is that? Even though it might be better for them because then they get more decks, they get more diverse types of companies coming their way and things like that. But changing that that sort of stringent mentality in an industry that's been at least perceived as very successful. It's, mm. you know, there it's talked about everywhere. Everyone knows SoftBank and you know all these big companies mm. in the VC world. Changing that perception um, internally, Th that seems like a, a monumental task and something that's not very easy to do. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How, how do you actually go about changing that perception? First of all, if you look at SoftBank's portfolio and the companies that have floated and the companies that have failed, it's performing very badly, very badly. Their portfolio, Slack is not performing well. Like we saw with WeWork, uh, one of their companies even recently went bust. What was it called? Their, their portfolio is not performing well. I'm not trying to change the VC industry and their opinion. I think I understand the way it works. I understand the structure and it's fine that, that what that capital structure exists. I'm more focused on democratizing access to the knowledge network and, and, and understanding of this, this game so that founders, especially first time founders really understand their options 
And I'm helping a lot more founders just focus on becoming customer funded. Well, why did you focus on this specifically? I mean, why did you say this is what I want to look at? Uh, two reasons, really. One, uh, it's fine for VC to exist alongside all of the other capital options that you have. Okay. But what's not good is that people are over indexing on this option like it's the only option. And what's missing is that the education gap, the knowledge gap. People are unaware and they're going into something and not fully being aware and understanding the path ahead. So a lot of the work that I do is to demystify that and to break that down and make it more accessible. It's why I started the Angel Investing School, to teach the, the fundamentals of how to get started with angel investing. Because what we saw was with the advancement of, uh, advancement of technology, like we saw the unbundling of banking services. So if I want to do foreign exchange, I go to TransferWise. If I want to do lending, I go to Funding Circle. If I want to even buy stocks and shares in the public market, I go to Robinhood or to Free Trade. If I want to invest in a startup, I go into Cedars or to Crowdcube. But I don't understand what my money's doing for me. I'm making really speculative trades and unintelligent guesses and gambles, putting 100 pounds into Monzo, not understanding if that is going to make me any return at all. It's dangerous. So what I'm doing is democratizing access to the education so that more people have a fundamental understanding of what they're about to get into, both founders and, and people that are interested in investing. And I think it's important as a market that we educate and inform the consumer before giving them financial options. Um, and it's something that was actually like really important before, but now I think with the advancement and the speed that technology is advancing, we've got some catching up to do. And we see it in a lot of areas that are, were unregulated and you're thinking like, like Airbnb, um, how do we regulate this? This wasn't a thing before. The gig economy, how do we regulate this? This wasn't a thing before. And regulation is going to be a big topic over the next five years, I think, around like how do these spaces become more regulated and how do we understand as governments how to set the boundaries of play within these environments. And we're seeing VCs such as Form Ventures who focus their thesis on regulation and policy. You know, because actually that's one of these areas now that are emerging that are really important that we've seen with GDPR, we've seen with, you know, the influence of social media and the role it's played in in Brexit and in voting for a prime minister in, in Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's now becoming really powerful, similar to how banking and the banking sector is powerful and influential, similar to how in Detroit and in the US in the 80s, the car manufacturing industry was powerful similar to how yeah. the steel industry and the oil industry was powerful yeah you know so tech is going through that now and that's where people are like actually are we in a bubble that's about to burst are we in like another crash like what's going on because yeah. the industry feels very familiar to a lot of patterns that we've seen historically in other crashes actually i, I want to touch a bit on that i mean those are excellent points but the founders making mistakes and that knowledge part of things that you're trying to address um you know we want to prevent founders from making mistakes because there's a lack of knowledge out there. People don't know what they're getting into. They can sign up with a VC that ends up, you know, taking control of most of their companies or something like that. And that's another perception that, you know, VCs are just out there to get as much control of the company for as little money as possible, right? They want to just get all the upside in terms of the financial gain and none of the actual work that goes into it, right? But you have to try and educate people on, okay, maybe it's worth going down like a, a loan kind of uh, funding strategy or other crowdsourcing strategies so you don't end up in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, but th that whole myth or uh, that ideology behind the fact that people think, I don't want to work with a VC because I don't want to give up control of my company, right? I don't want to lose this baby that I've worked so hard to, mm. you know, nurture and, and caress and, and really get to that next level. Um, is that really the truth of, of the way things are? VCs just want to get as much a share of the company no. at any cost no. uh, just to get all the upside. No, but it is important to understand equity and dilution. 
Okay, so every time you raise, you give away equity into your company. By giving away equity, you're giving away some voting rights, some rights, and you're giving away some control. So if the more rounds that you raise, the more equity you're giving away. The more equity you give away, the more you have to question even, have I been diluted down to a level of equity where I'm no longer incentivized and interested in even running this company? You know, there's famous case studies like Box has found that Ariel Levine, he was like diluted down to like 5%. Really? Like, it happens a lot. It happens a lot. But I think the bigger question is really for founders to understand. And I love this actually. Like when I was part of Entrepreneur First, which oh, is yeah. like one of like, Europe's leading accelerator programs, Matt Clifford gave a really good talk. He's one of the founders on the fact that VCs are not that into you. And okay. I think that's the first thing to understand. They're not actually that into you. If, if there's their business model is to invest into 1% of the deals that they see, and they're seeing 3,000 deals, they're really not that into you. When you say they're not that into you, you mean in general or the ones that they actually invest in? I hope they're in, into those, no, the they ones are, they invest that in. That represents 1% of the people that they see. So right. the majority of people, they're not that into you because they don't invest in the majority. They invest in just the 1%. Mm. So unless you're the 1%, they're not into you. That's, that's the game. So a lot of founders make the mistake of, oh, I want to raise money so that I can start my business. Red flag. Because the VC, the money should help you accelerate your growth. If you can't survive without the money, maybe you're not the right person to solve that problem and start that business. You know, so if these people that are raising so that I can hire developers because I can't code, but I'm building something technical like an app, maybe you're not the right person to build that. Because if someone competes with you and crushes you because they can code and they've got the same idea, then actually they're more better positioned to deal with that problem than you are. So you've got two options. You can learn to code very fast or you can inspire people that can code to join you. If you can't do either of the two, that's a bigger problem to solve than going to get VC money. And what founders need to learn is how do I really flesh out my highest risk assumptions and validate those first? And often those high risk assumptions aren't necessarily first. Can I get money to grow my company? There, do I have a problem to solve? Have I validated that I found an audience that finds this a problem to solve? And once I validate that, can I find more people in that audience that I can solve this problem for? And why do they love what I'm giving them versus the existing alternatives in the market? And have I found channels to reach that audience online and offline? That's where the realm of where founders need to focus, first of all. That's where you test out, have I got a business or not? That's, yeah. that's the truth. Yeah. No, yeah, it's not nothing to do with the money. It's, it's often interviews and speaking to people. Yeah. And speaking to customers early and often as you grow. As you mentioned, there are interviews and speaking to people. Those are some, some of the softer parts of, mm. of being good as a founder and as a VC, right? Having those people skills um, and the emotional aspect of it as well, right? Mm. We'd like to believe that people only get involved in things for logical reasons, mm. right? It's because it's going to make me a lot of money or X, Y, and Z. But the truth of the matter is there's a big component of emotion, right? Sometimes you just have to have conviction about certain founders, certain ideas, um, which is a, a double-edged sword because in some ways you have to go with your gut instinct, right? Mm. But in other ways, it leads to sort of biases whereby let's say, um, you know, I don't invest in, in minority founders or something like that, or, mm. or, you know, I don't work with female founders or, or something like mm. that because um, my emotional component there is not strong or I don't have a strong link with them or, you know? Can I, can I jump in quick? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So I think a lot of the times VCs are not saying I'm not working with minority founders. I'm not working with female founders. I think actions speak loud, loud in their words and results um, mean more than intention. Mm. And the results are showing that they're not working with female founders or they're not working with minority founders because they're not investing in them. Mm. Okay. And often there's two, two, two problems that lead to this. One is pattern matching. So 
you know, I invested in a middle-class white person that looks like Jeff Bezos, that looks like Mark Zuckerberg, that looks like Bill Gates, that looks like Richard Branson, that looks like Alan Sugar, that looks like all these models of success that I've seen in entrepreneurship. So I'm investing in more of what I know, you know, sometimes because I went to McKinsey, so I'm not investing in other people that went to McKinsey. I went, I went to Goldman and I recognize people that went to Goldman. Yeah. But I get that deal flow because I'm in those networks. People work with people okay. that they have familiarity yeah. with. or yeah. And, and the second problem that this is the most annoying is that in those areas where you don't have a network, go and build it. You can go and build it. Easier said than done, though. No, no, no. It just takes effort. It's intention. I can go and build it. If I want to connect with the LGBT community, I'll go on Eventbrite and meet up and find LGBT meetups. And I'll attend at least two a month for the next three months. I'll go into Facebook groups. I'll go into Instagram pages and I'll find LGBT communities and I'll join. I'll find Slack groups and I'll join. And I'll immerse myself in that community until it leads me to water and it leads me to people that I can serve. In fact, I'll add value in those communities and help out and just be helpful so that I'm not even there to just ask and take. Okay, I'll, be a, I'll become a valued contributor to those communities. And once I have those links, then I now know I can source deals from those communities that I've built bridges with. It takes intention and effort. When I was growing up and I was getting into my first job, employees used to say that I was hard to reach. I wasn't hard to reach. They weren't trying to reach me. There's a difference. With your employee value proposition, if you're not marketing people like me within your images, if you're not using language that I can adhere to, if you're not coming to where I am, but you're spending time in Oxford and Cambridge where I'm not, then you're not going to reach me. But if you do reach me, you're probably going to get me underpriced. And I'm probably going to deliver more value than you think because you don't often work with people like me and I'm different. Mm. And I bring that diversity of thought and there's value to that. And it's shown now in my career. So it's really interesting people's perception on, you know, I'm investing in what I know and I'm investing in what's close to home and I'm lazy versus I'm going to put intention and effort into building up my networks and building up access to new places, which we can all do. You know, you mentioned something quite important there, which is the, the element of building your network, um, being seen as adding value to that particular space that you're in. Mm. Uh, one thing and then having empathy said, as well. Yeah. Like, like stepping into their shoes and understanding from their perspective how things are. Yeah, yeah, most yeah. definitely. But l let's talk about uh, the elitist kind of mentality or perception that's out there that, you know, VCs uh, want to hire the kids from Oxford, from Cambridge that have a certain background, you know, that there's is a privileged few that get to be in that space. Um, because they have the networks either through their acts of their own or through the you know networks that they've created um, you know growing up or whatever it is but that elitist mentality you know the common person would look at it and say that's a sort of bubble that exists outside of my reality um is that the truth that the VC world is mostly an elitist kind of closed club um and if so I mean <coughs> how do we change that or is that just the way it's always going to be going forward um so history is not a good predictor of future results or future patterns, but what it's good at is telling us how we got here. Okay. And if we look historically at the VC industry, it's, let's look at the British VC industry. A lot of the venture capitalists um, were either previously founders themselves or they worked at like an investment bank or in an M&A team. Okay. A lot of those people happen to be working class, middle, uh, middle class um, white males. Okay. Statistically, we know this to be true because over over ninety percent of people in investment making decisions at VCs are middle class white males. Okay, so statistically, the data is the data. Okay, and then when we see it come into deal flow, um, in, in, in into the investment decisions, when we notice that one p in every pound goes to all female teams, I think it's less than ten p in every pound goes to a, a team with at least one female on it. 
there's a direct correlation to who's making those investment decisions. Okay? So we can see from the data the impact of that. And we know historically where it's come from because that money and that capital has come from that industry. In America, the earliest that I've researched and learned about in terms of VC as an industry is in the 1950s. Uh, Arthur Rock, who was an investment banker, middle-class white male, went to Silicon Valley, invested in this Silicon, the Fairchild Semiconductor Company, the Treacherous Eight, as they were known, and that was the first VC investment. Again, where were the roots of that capital? You know, And the, the problem is that the wealth gap just gets wider and wider. So if I invest in an amazing company like Netscape by Mark Andreessen, who's an amazing entrepreneur and is right, Okay, and he becomes an investor, and he's actually actually investing in more diverse founders than the average, actually. But um, using him as an example, if he went to then invest in more people like himself, it just begets the problem. Yeah. Okay. It's a like, cycle, right? It just yeah. keeps going. And we do have VCs that are doing a great job at, at attacking this. If we look at Nicholas, the founder of Skype, who now is a, the founder of Atomico, which is a Series A VC, yeah. very conscious effort on producing this European report very conscious about the diversity stats every year, very conscious and intentional about how they can erode that problem. They've got the Atomical Angel program. They've got other programs where they're supporting diverse communities. They were invested in Backstage London. So they're putting their money where their mouth is and their expertise to add value and help to solve that problem. And a few others are starting to do the same in that space as well. So it's a game of inches, but we're slowly getting better and better. The problem I have is that we over-index on VC. And I'm like, actually, the majority of founders don't even need that money. Yeah. And yeah. actually, what's happening to their support trench? Because they yeah. will want the value beyond the capital, but they're yeah. not getting it. No, I hear and you. And I guess from speaking to founders and spending so much time with founders over the years, I just realized that I can fill that knowledge gap in a, in a scalable way, um, in a way that they understand, in a way that they can relate to. So I'm going after that blue ocean, not even because I want to start a business, but because I've got a problem that I can solve and I can't see a, a feasible way to solve it with existing companies that i see out in the market yeah no that makes sense i i like the way you put it a couple of times i've heard the word game come out a couple of times it seems like you're uh you know you study the game analyze where the opportunities are where the gaps are mm. um and I, I think that's something that people don't necessarily realize out there at the end of the day it is a game right a game of placing your bets it's a mm. game of analyzing who the players are understanding where the opportunities are um and uh yeah just trying to be the best player in the game from a vc perspective you're trying to you know be the best vc you can and place bets on on a few founders and a few technologies mm. and a few spaces um but it's a game that's uh, that's evolving rapidly as you mentioned mm. with you know diverse founders and uh with the technological landscape changing so vastly as well with ai and a lot of new ideas coming to the foray but um i think that'd probably be a good note to end the uh the conversation conversation. Thanks so much for your time today. And um, yeah, we'll definitely uh, keep this conversation going. Thanks, Andy. No, thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of Saka's Is That So? We discuss some pertinent topics within the venture capital industry. And hopefully you guys are aware of different or alternative sources of funding. If you ever see that you need large or small amounts of capital to make your business successful. Andy was a great guest because he had some cogent tips, which hopefully you guys have written down. But if not, feel free to visit us at www.sakasisthatso.com for more insights. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or other social media platforms that you use. Tune in to next week's episode and don't forget to subscribe. <music>